0: Drawbridge Delusion Since the gavel has already fallen, and I have essentially no chance at a future, I will agree to tell you my experience. Not because I expect you to believe it, but only because you've been so relentless in your hounding me for the details, the motive, the facts, as you call them. So insistent you are that I know more than I'm letting on, but I've always suspected that you would meet my story with skepticism. So I've waited until this point, the point at which my fate has already been settled and my sentence handed down. And there's no longer a chance for you to regard what I'm telling you as a mere fabrication I've crafted with the purpose of lessening my punishment or diverting the blame. As you know, by the time this reaches you, my punishment will already have been carried out. There would be no incentive for me to lie to you at this point. So now, at last, I will deliver to you my confession in full. Imagine... If you will, that you're at a public park where a children's soccer match is being played. The kids run about on the field, chasing after the ball, their parents cheering excitedly from the sidelines, when all of a sudden a pack of wolves trots out onto the field and devours one of the children. The act itself is shocking beyond description, but you find yourself even more disturbed by the fact that nobody else seems to notice. The children just keep playing, despite the horrific fate of their teammate, and the parents and bystanders go on cheering. You may, if you were to witness such a thing, be overtaken by the shock of the horrid spectacle. Indeed, you could be rendered speechless, but you wouldn't leave what you had seen there on that field. It would go home with you. It would change you. And perhaps it would even open your mind to things that you weren't prepared to acknowledge. So am I saying that I witnessed just such an event? No. I've articulated this story for you simply as an illustration of how I felt when all this started. It was agonizing not only because of what I witnessed, but because apparently only I witnessed it. I was, as you know, living in Eastwood at the time. I would often take the bus into the city to pick up various things that I needed. On just such an occasion, this day being a cloudy Tuesday, which I remember because it would soon be a day I frequently thought back on, I boarded the bus at its stop in front of my apartment building. The bus was crowded, but no more than usual. The typical weekday passengers were seated in their rows, waiting with various levels of patience for their stop to arrive. I stood in the aisle and gripped the overhead railing as the bus cycled through its gears, making its way towards the city center. As we picked up speed, cruising along the bayside section of the highway on the southern edge of the city, we passed by something that should have brought the bus to a screeching halt. On the shoulder of the road, parked just in front of a lively beachfront neighborhood, was a little red Volkswagen that was engulfed in flames. Oddly, there was no sign of the burning car as we approached, no trail of smoke leading into the sky, no loud blast, it just seemed to appear there. As the bus passed alongside the car, burning so intensely that I could feel the heat of the flames, I saw something that confirmed the fear I'd first felt when I saw the burning car. There was somebody inside. I could see their hands reaching through the smoke the skin on their palms melting against the car's window as they tried to break free. But the bus just kept rolling on ahead. Just after we passed the car, my head turning on a swivel to keep it in view, one of the car's windows burst, and from the inside I could hear a scream of hopeless desperation. Held by a silent panic, I turned and looked at the other passengers, but not a single one met my eyes. There were no terrified reactions, no faces pressed up against the glass to view the morbid spectacle. It was as if everyone on that bus had either missed the burning car completely, or had made a decision to be willfully apathetic towards it. And it wasn't only within the bus that people had failed to react. I'd spotted a young couple pushing a baby stroller not ten feet from the burning wreck, but like the others it was lost on them. Likewise, there'd been a jogger running alongside the road's shoulder. But when he got to it, the man just ran right past. He didn't even bother to turn his head and look. Nobody had called 911. I hadn't even seen anyone take out their phone so they could film the car as it burned. As I'm sure you're thinking at this point, the level-minded individual that you are, there seems to be a relatively benign but still serious explanation for what I saw. Considering the fact that nobody saw the car but me, it wouldn't be a jump to suggest that I had in fact been hallucinating. The reason nobody else had seen anything was because there was nothing there, you might be saying. But it's here that I must remind you of the wolves on the soccer field. Rationality would only take me so far. I hadn't merely seen the Volkswagen burning. I'd felt the raw heat of the flames. I'd heard the blood-curdling scream of the car's occupant. It had been such an intense sensory experience that it defied the concept of a simple mind trick. It changed me, seeing that car burn, knowing someone was trapped inside. I felt like I took their pain home with me. Though I'd failed to react... Failed to save that person from their suffering. I didn't forget them. I didn't write the episode off. On the contrary, it was all I could think about. A question was beginning to take shape in my mind. What if the world I saw and experienced wasn't the place I thought it was? Though I didn't have any scientific resources at my disposal to either confirm or refute this hypothesis... So the only means by which I could get an answer to this existential quandary was through the incessant observation of the world around me. Reality was no longer a place that could be taken at face value, I felt. If I looked very closely, eventually something else would be revealed to me. I would again catch a glimpse of something that was for some reason obscured. The means by which people were being kept from seeing reality as it truly was, and furthermore the reason I was the exception to this disturbing new development, were not things I would have cared to speculate on. I was interested only in what I could prove. Now, I know you think you have me pegged as someone who obscures the truth, someone who would rather keep the facts hidden, but like you... The truth is the only thing that has mattered to me since all this started. The only difference between us is that I know what happens when one finds that truth. I know how it changes you. For me, the change was almost immediate. By the time I got home from my little bus trip, I was already seeing the world through a new set of eyes. I scarcely left my apartment in the days that followed, opting instead to be a silent observer a defiant pair of eyes looking out at a sea of windows, trying to find something objective. I took it upon myself to study my neighbor's routines, hoping that by witnessing some discrepancy it would lead me to a greater understanding of this strange new reality I faced. I understand that such behavior is unbecoming and, well, paranoid. But if I didn't look... If I didn't watch the world very closely, I knew that I would never see what was really there. And what exactly did I expect to see? Well, truthfully, I didn't know. The driving force behind my inquiry was the simple notion that there were people and things that were being hidden from the world. If only I could see the burning car, perhaps there were other things that only I could see. I looked out my third floor window, gazing at the houses across the street. Beyond them a public park stretched out towards the harbor. I looked at the whirling mass of clouds that stood above the ocean, and as I did I noticed my own reflection in the window. For a moment it was a face that looked unfamiliar even to me, but then my eyes were drawn back down to the street below. I saw something that made me feel immediately uneasy. But the feeling arose from a place beyond conscious thought, for there was nothing violent or grotesque unfolding on the street below. All I could see was an elderly woman emerging from the front door of her house and pushing away in her wheelchair. So why then, while witnessing something so innocuous, was I suddenly shaken? Why did my skin crawl at the sight of this harmless old woman leaving her house? There was nothing off about her physical appearance. I couldn't figure it out. But then I realized what it was. She never comes home, I thought. It had suddenly dawned on me that in the day and a half I'd spent observing the world below, I'd seen that woman leave her house several times, but I hadn't ever seen her come home. How was such a thing possible, I wondered. She couldn't leave her house if she'd never come back. Of course, you may contend that she returned through a different entrance, perhaps through the back of the house. But from the vantage point of my apartment, I could clearly see the backyard through which she would have had to enter. And it seemed to me that this detour would have been made even more difficult by the fact that she was in a wheelchair Still, you could argue that she could have returned while I was in the bathroom or preparing a meal, either of which I was willing to entertain, but I vowed to watch her more closely from then on. I sat by the window and awaited her return. Minutes turned to hours, and still she didn't show. When it got dark, I was surprised, and when it got around to midnight, I was tempted to abandon my post and go to sleep. But I sat and waited. A half-empty glass of port at my side, looking out at a world that I was growing increasingly suspicious of. When dawn broke and there was still no sign of the woman, I was deeply confused, and even a little worried for her safety. I was slumped over in my chair, my chin resting on an upturned palm. After staying awake all night awaiting the woman's return, I was as tired as I could ever remember being. Still, I kept my eyes on her little brick house. About an hour later, as my eyelids began to grow dreadfully heavy, I saw something that drew me bolt upright in my chair. The front door of the old woman's house opened, and again she emerged. She was wearing a nearly identical outfit to the one she'd been wearing the previous day, a burnt orange sweater and brown pants. I was inclined to follow her, to see where she went, how it was possible that she could reappear from a house she had never returned to. But I was far too tired to move, and so instead I slept. But before I went to bed, I set up an old digital camcorder I had laying around to film the woman's house. I wanted conclusive video evidence of her impossible routine. Over the next three days, I continued filming my across-the-street neighbor. The only times I stopped were to change the memory card or the battery on the camera. In the 36 hours of footage I collected, I documented this woman, or women, leaving her house on three separate occasions. Not at one point in the video can the woman be seen returning to her house, Was it possible that there was a seemingly endless supply of identical-looking retirement-age women in that house? Was that house, in fact, some kind of factory that made elderly women at a rate of one old woman per day? Or was something else going on? Although the footage was perplexing and seemed to invite speculation, I tried to stay focused on what I knew. What I knew was that every morning between 9 and 11 a.m., A woman exited that house in a wheelchair and rolled east before turning towards the harbor, at which time I would lose sight of her. You are, no doubt, writhing at my admissions here. Certainly what I'm describing is consistent with some kind of neurosis. You'd probably label my actions obsessive even if I did uncover something beyond explanation. But none of my concern was being spent on personal well-being or neighborhood ethics, I needed to know what was going on inside that house. I didn't know if finding out where this woman came from would give me all the answers I was looking for, but it seemed like a vital piece of the puzzle. And all of it, even then, seemed connected to me. I didn't know what the person in the burning car could have to do with the reappearing woman in the wheelchair, but I suspected that something connected them. It wasn't so much that I thought one had caused the other. More I felt that they were both just symptoms of the same mechanism, the same great truth that was being hidden from the world. The following morning I rose early and dressed. After a light breakfast and a period of deep thought, I descended the stairs, and, as nonchalantly as possible, walked across the street towards the woman's house. I loitered for a bit on the sidewalk, making sure nobody had taken note of me, before moving swiftly for the bushes at the side of the house. The garden itself was a bit overgrown, but not entirely unkempt. The house, constructed of red brick with white trim around all the windows, looked to be in fairly decent condition. But when I lifted my head from the cover of the hedge to peer inside one of the windows, I was astonished to find that the house was entirely empty, The floors had been stripped of their tile. The walls were barren. I sidestepped to another window and saw more of the same. There was no furniture, no mail, no food, no piles of laundry. It looked as if it hadn't been occupied in ages. I wondered suddenly if I had gone to the wrong house. But just as I did, to my utter astonishment, the front door swung open. A slight, elderly woman in a wheelchair appeared, and, after shutting the door behind her, pushed herself down the path to the sidewalk. It was an uncanny thing to see from my vantage point, having full view of the house's interior as well as the front door from which she'd appeared. It was like seeing something come from nothing. There had been no movement, no sound coming from inside. She had simply emerged from that doorway as if it were a portal through which she'd entered our world. I was tempted to stay there and ponder the impossibility, but I decided instead to follow the woman, for fear that she would slip behind a corner and disappear from reality. To keep a low cover, I stayed almost half a block behind her. It was something of a struggle for me to walk slow enough to stay at that distance. Every few minutes I would catch myself walking at a normal pace and rapidly catching up to the woman, and I'd have to stop and pretend to tie my shoe or check my watch so as to maintain a safe distance. When she got to the corner of Fifth and Maple, the woman predictably turned left. There were hardly any pedestrians in the area, but I still made it a point to keep a low cover. When I turned the corner and looked down Fifth Street, I could see all the way to the water, It was a clear day, but windy, and the surf was invariably choppy. A few dozen boats were docked in the harbor, and I could see their masts swaying like little metronomes. Because 5th Street tends downhill as it leads to the harbor, the woman was picking up speed now. She rolled steadily down the sidewalk along the final block of houses, after which, as you know, stands the park. Although I will admit I've always thought the word park to be a generous title for this particular plot of land. It was hardly more than an acre of grass dotted with a few dozen oak trees. But I won't deny that I was partial to the views it offered of the harbor. And on days, perhaps ones less windy than this, I myself might have gone down to that park just to sit and look out at the ocean. But on this day I would afford myself no such leisure. I followed the woman as she veered off the sidewalk and wheeled her way through the grass. As we entered the park, I noticed two young men approaching. In an effort to avoid suspicion, I turned and pretended to inspect the leaves on a nearby tree. As the men walked past, I looked at them, and I wondered what they saw when they looked at me. If you hadn't already, I'm sure you've deemed me a maniac by now. Some kind of obsessive freak in the grasp of a paranoid psychosis. But if you've listened this far, it must be because you've heard something in my story that you can't yet refute. There's something you're hanging on. Something you can't reconcile. And that was exactly how I felt as well. I needed to know where it was this woman went every day. I felt that if I followed her every move, I'd be able to uncover the secret to her impossible daily loop. I'd eventually see where she ended up, or, perhaps more aptly, where she disappeared from. But even more than that, I felt a need to know who or what she was. I considered the idea that the woman in the wheelchair, like the occupant of the burning Volkswagen, may be imperceptible to the greater world. The wheelchair woman had shown up in the footage from my video camera, which would suggest that she wasn't just a hallucination. But how could she show up in the footage if she wasn't visible to the naked eye? I tried to recall if I had ever seen her interact with anyone, but I couldn't come up with a single instance. I'd never seen anyone stop and talk to her, never seen anyone smile or wave at her. Nobody had even offered to help push her wheelchair through the rough, patchy grass at the park. Could people see her, I wondered? Was she real to them, or only to me? And if the latter were true, what would explain her odd behavior? Was she some kind of bug in the system? An unconscious agent mistakenly programmed to repeat the same impossible daily routine? As I looked at the woman, I imagined her as a kind of receiver, her movements dictated by transmissions from some far-off source. Like a human drone, she only appeared to be autonomous. It was a chilling thing to consider, especially as I sat there in a public park with people all around. What if the faces I see every day aren't as human as they appear? What if some of them amount to little more than background noise? empty renderings that are thoughtlessly created to fill space. A moment later I was snapped out of my frightened imaginings after noticing that I'd lost sight of the woman. I'd been leaning up against a tree, trying to look inconspicuous, when a small crowd of people had entered the park. When I caught back up to her, I took note of the way everyone seemed to divert their path around her, each of them managing to pass without acknowledging her. It seemed odd to me, A woman like her going out to a park on a nice day and not interacting with a soul. It wasn't as though she looked unapproachable. She didn't look like a homeless beggar that people would ignore intentionally. She was slight, probably five feet tall. Her silver hair was neatly cut and sat atop her head in a spiral kind of shape. It reminded me of those satellite images of hurricanes that they post on the news. Her clothes looked new, or at least untarnished. Her white shoes were bland yet comfortable looking. And even the wheelchair she rode in looked like it had hardly been used, its silver rims shining in the midday sun. Eventually she seemed to get tired, or maybe she stopped for some other reason. But either way she settled near the northern edge of the park, not far from where the grass began to slope down towards the water's edge. I sat on a nearby bench and watched her for some time. I was still searching for a sign of acknowledgement, some indication that this anonymous old woman was real to the greater world. But nobody took notice of her, and by all accounts, she was just fine with that. From what little I could see of her facial expression, she seemed entirely content sitting there by herself. Beyond where she sat, I watched the two halves of the 5th Street drawbridge begin to tilt upward so that a large fishing vessel could exit the harbor. The boat idled for a few minutes, until both sides of the bridge stood nearly vertical on their opposing sides of the water. Then the boat passed through the channel, and began its voyage out to sea. When my eyes returned to the woman in the wheelchair, it appeared as though she'd fallen asleep. For a moment I was afraid she had died. I wondered if that was the final step in her bizarre daily cycle. Did she come to that park every day to die, only to be reborn in that empty house every morning? But no, she was still breathing. I could see the ever so subtle rise and fall of her chest as she sat there, her hands neatly folded in her lap. It was then that an idea began to take shape in my mind although I didn't act on it just yet. I remained there, waiting for something to happen, something that would help me understand this enigma. But hours passed and the sun began to set, and soon I was worried that if I failed to act, I would never uncover the hidden truth that I was searching for. The wind had dwindled into a gentle breeze, and many of the people had gone home. Still I rose slowly, looking around to make sure I hadn't caught anyone's attention. ticking soft, muffled steps, I approached the woman. I stooped and unlatched the brakes on her wheelchair, taking a moment to study the contours of her face. There was something hollow about her expression. The way her soft, wrinkled skin was laid over the rigid structure of her face somehow managed to form an expression that didn't betray any emotion at all. I could think of no way to describe her, other than by saying she looked empty. Slightly rattled, I rose and stood at the woman's back, gripping the handles of her wheelchair with my trembling fists. I held the position for a few moments, half expecting someone to shout at me, or for the woman to suddenly wake up. But nothing happened. And so, gently at first... I began pushing the woman's wheelchair across the grass. As I pushed her out of the park in the direction of 5th street, I studied the faces of the people we passed. I was still looking for someone to notice her, to see a single pair of eyes glance at her as we passed. But no one appeared to. When we reached the sidewalk, I steered her west along 5th street, as you know, in the direction of the drawbridge. I was frightened, yet strangely determined. I remember as we stepped out onto the bridge, looking down at our shadows cast by the halogen lamps that shine down from above. It struck me as almost bizarre that the woman would cast a shadow. I guess I had expected her not to. I stopped for a moment, considering what I was about to do. And then I resumed pushing her along. I parked her wheelchair at the center of the bridge, right next to the seam where the two halves of the bridge met. Then, I stooped to see if the woman was still sleeping. She was. And so, I set the brakes on her wheelchair and walked back the way I came. When I stepped off the bridge, I turned and looked back at her, parked there in the middle of the bridge's pedestrian lane, and then I looked up at the bridge's operator, sitting in his booth not far from where I stood on the bridge's east end. I understood that what I'd done was dangerous, and by no means would I say I wanted to kill this woman. But I firmly believed that if she was real, then people would notice her, and they wouldn't allow the bridge to be lifted while she was sitting there. It would firstly be the job of the drawbridge operator to simply not lift the bridge if he could see there was someone on it. But if, by mistake... The drawbridge operator did lift the bridge while someone was still on it. One would be expected to believe that any drivers or pedestrians in the area would immediately raise alarm. Especially if it appeared that this person had some sort of disability. But minute after minute ticked past, and nobody seemed to notice the lonely old woman sitting in the middle of the bridge. Then, finally, my moment of truth arrived. I could see a pair of lights floating towards us from the dark mass of the ocean, and I knew that a boat was coming in to dock. Little by little, the cars and pedestrians made their way off the bridge, and soon the Fifth Street Bridge was left with a lone occupant. I may seem to you like a callous individual, but I'll admit that I was shocked when I saw the bridge's warning lights begin to flash and the large no-crossing signs being lowered in front of the road. Anxiously, I looked around, searching for a panicked face, for some bystander to point and scream, "'Stop! There's somebody on the bridge!' But everything at the edge of the 5th Street Bridge was business as usual. I heard a loud hydraulic clap, and felt a subtle quaking beneath my feet as the bridge's weight began to be displaced." As the two opposing segments of the bridge slowly began to lift, I watched from where I was standing among a small group of pedestrians. They appeared, strikingly, to be bored. They sounded like they were complaining about the service at a restaurant they'd recently visited. I needed to hear them speak no more than a few lazily articulated sentences to know that they couldn't see the person before them, no more than 200 feet away and in a well-lit area who was clearly in danger. As she rose into the sky, the woman looked like she was teetering on the edge of a great concrete monolith, ascending through the heavens while an absent god decided her fate. What have I done? I wondered suddenly. And, full of terror and regret, I looked up at the drawbridge operator, wanting, praying even, for him to suddenly notice her but he just stared ahead at the bridge, as if it was empty. Of course, you must be saying that I myself should have been yelling out in protest. I myself should have been raising alarm. But to this I can't provide an adequate response. Was it cowardice that kept me silent? Or perhaps you may suggest that I simply wanted to see my plan through to its end, but whatever the reason, standing there had rendered me mute. I was gripped by the same silence that had held me when I saw the person in the burning Volkswagen. As the bridge's angle neared 45 degrees, she teetered slightly, and for a moment I thought she would come tumbling down. But her chair just seemed to pivot and turn sideways before hooking around a streetlight that extended from the bridge's sidewalk. With the metal shaft of the streetlight supporting her, however precariously, She continued to rise up through the night air. Through all of this, it became difficult for me to tell if she was still asleep, or if at some point she'd been jolted awake. Though if she was awake, she didn't appear to be moving. She wasn't waving her arms around or screaming. She was just sort of hunched there, sitting almost horizontally in her wheelchair, lodged between the streetlight and the guardrail, And soon, the bridge was nearing its apex, the angle of the pavement nearly vertical. And for a split second, I thought my little exercise would just be a farce, that she would remain wedged against the streetlight until the bridge descended all the way back down and I could safely wheel her away. But we both know it didn't happen that way. I didn't stay to watch her hit the ground. The second she came dislodged, and I saw that she was falling towards the crowd of unwitting spectators, I turned and began to walk away. I walked about six paces before I both heard and felt the mass of her body, her apparently very real body, hit the ground. And then, of course, the screaming began. The same crowd of onlookers, who had stood by in silence as this woman was lifted to dizzying heights before their eyes, now cried out in anguish. Had she become real only at the moment of her death, I wondered. Feeling like I might vomit, I turned and walked home. I didn't necessarily think I would outrun justice entirely, But I'll admit I was surprised at how fast your men turned the footage from the bridge's security cameras into a search warrant for my apartment. It's a bit odd though, isn't it? I mean, your department caught me by assessing the drawbridge security cameras, so you obviously know how to critically assess recorded footage. Tell me then, what is your assessment of the footage you found in my apartment? The unedited footage of the woman you claim I killed leaving her house three times without ever once having returned home. Considering the fact that the footage never came up in court, I'm going to assume that one of your officers conveniently lost it. I suppose it's all the same, though. Even without the security footage, you already had a handful of witnesses that put someone matching my description at the scene. Some of them even testified in court. It's funny, though, that none of them could recall having seen me push her wheelchair out onto the bridge. In fact, not a single one claimed to have seen the woman until she came crashing down to the pavement. Not even the drawbridge operator, who stands to lose his job, if not worse, for the part he played in the incident. Even if he is arrested, though, I doubt it'll even make the headlines. Because as far as the public is concerned, they've already caught their culprit. And do I object to this assertion? That I should be held accountable for this woman's death? No. I accept my punishment. I'll go quietly, as they say. But I'll insist on leaving you with one final question. Have you managed to identify her yet? Have you found any clues in her empty house that have led you to her name? Or is she, as my arrest warrant states, still known simply as Jane Doe? If any of what I've told you is true, it could almost appear as though this woman didn't have an identity at all. That her existence in our reality was only cemented when I killed her. How something like that could even be possible... I couldn't venture to say, although I'm sure it won't matter, because in time I trust you'll find a more rational explanation for what happened. People don't simply appear out of thin air, after all. Everyone knows the world just doesn't work that way. Hey, if you're still listening to this, I want to first say thank you. I'm super grateful for all the support this podcast has received. I hope that if you like it, you'll leave a rating or a review on whatever platform you listen on. And I also want to let you know that I have a Patreon through which you can get access to my full-length audiobook. It's called Solace, and it blends aspects of cosmic horror and mystery and thriller. You can listen to the first 30 minutes of it by checking out the episode titled Solace in the podcast feed. And you can get access to the whole thing, which is over 8 hours total, by subscribing to my Patreon at the $3 donation level. It used to be a flat $3 monthly donation, but I recently changed it so it only bills patrons on months where I put an episode out, since I don't always publish exactly every 30 days. So yeah, if you subscribe at that $3 per episode level, you get access to the audiobook You get early access to every regular episode. I put them out a few days early for the patrons. The Patreon also has its own private RSS feed, so you don't have to listen to the audiobook or the podcast episodes on the Patreon app. You can just listen on whatever uh, podcast app you like, given they accept RSS feeds. And you get to know that you are supporting this show, if that's something that you're interested in. So yeah, the link uh, to the Patreon is in the show notes, as well as in the bio for the show. But if you can't see it, it's patreon.com slash A-C-E-P-H-A-L-E. You can also follow me on Instagram or Twitter. The links to those are down below as well. And now, because I hate self-promotion so much, I am going to shut up. But before I do, I again just want to say thank you.